As Pastor Brian had said earlier, we've been celebrating Advent, working our way really to this Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas Day. And as a church, we've already taken a look at the biblical concepts of peace and hope and joy. And today, our focus is going to be on love, the love of God. And so with that, we want to show a video, and then I'll come back up and share some things. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting more nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. I'm going to pray for the message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your love. Lord. I thank you that you allow us, Lord, the privilege to know you, an all-powerful, sovereign God. And yet because you love this world, you loved us, Lord, you gave us your Son. And you've opened the door, Father, for relationship for us, for us to know you, for us to have relationship with you, to find forgiveness in you and life, Lord, abundant life now and eternal life to come. And so, Father, with that in mind, I now offer you this service. And I ask, Father, that you would help us, each of us here today. Lord, we have our issues, but knowing your love is present and always available makes all the difference. I pray you help us this morning, Lord. Speak to us in spirit and truth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we looked at that video... The video said that love is unclear in the English language. It primarily refers to a feeling that happens to a person. Then it said you can love your mom and you can love pizza. If your mom thinks you love pizza more than her, that kind of thing, she'll be really upset, that kind of deal. And Jesus explained love as loving God and then also loving your neighbor, that they're two sides of the same coin. And agape love is not primarily a feeling that happens to someone where we say, I love you. But Jesus says that love is action. Love moves. It is other-oriented. It is focused on the other more than ourselves. And so this morning, as I sought to find what text would work for love, I mean, what better text than John 3.16? And John 3.16 really is a conversation between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. And in this message today, we'll see that Nicodemus is impacted by the love of God. And that love brought dramatic change to his life. It was love and action that impacted a change in this man. Now, this is not going to be your typical Christmas message. Because Christmas is really more than just a celebration of the baby Jesus. The true meaning of Christmas is that that baby grew up into a man. And he lived every stage of life that we live, but he lived it in a way that pleased his father, pleased God. And he willingly was put on a cross and died for our sins. And he rose again. Christmas encompasses all of that. And so this message is, is going to focus on that, how that kind of love, 
impacts this man by the name of Nicodemus. And this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do. I'm going to share the gospel story, the story of Nicodemus from John chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 19. I'm going to share it from the perspective of Nicodemus using his thoughts and his voice. It's going to be in the first person, not in the third person. Pray for me. Now, there's a reason I'm doing this. This is not to entertain you. This is still preaching. But I know that many of you have been in so many Christmas messages so many times that you just kind of come in like, oh, yeah, another Christmas. And I want you to see it through a different perspective, through a different lens. I want you to see it through the eyes of a man who's been changed by the love of God, this man Nicodemus. Now, since I'm going to preach this way, I want to explain a few things before we begin. First, a few of the things I'm going to share are going to be fictional. They kind of highlight the story. They add depth to it to kind of bring it to life. But for the most part, I'm going to follow the biblical text, the, the same text you have in your Bible. Second, with that in mind, I want to provide a background to Nicodemus. Nicodemus from John chapter 3, we know that he was a re religious leader and ruler, and he was a man of power and influence. And he had achieved success, and he was known as part of the religious leaders, part of a council known as the Sanhedrin. But he was lacking a living faith in the living God through the power of the Spirit, which can only be found by faith in Christ. And at the point that, that Nicodemus meets Jesus, Jesus had just come onto the scene, and he was known as a rabbi, but, but he was a controversial figure. And Nicodemus is mentioned only in the book of John, and he's mentioned in three chapters. John chapter 3, Nicodemus appears to be a seeker, someone who is intrigued but a little unsure about who Jesus is. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus actually stepped forward and defends Jesus against the religious council. It seems that he's moved closer to Jesus to believe. And then in John chapter 19, Nicodemus takes a great risk. He goes with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus from the cross. And Joseph, by the way, was a disciple of Jesus in secret. And he goes with him and he buries him in a tomb. Because of that great risk, I firmly believe that Nicodemus became a true follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, that he truly was born again. And with that, I want to begin the message. I've entitled this message, The Power of Love. Now, some of you know me. My name is Nicodemus. And I've been asked today to share with you some thoughts and, and my memories of what I know about Jesus Christ. And, and I don't want to start when I first met him. What I really want to do is go back some 30 years before I met Jesus because I was, I was a young man. I was in my 20s. And I lived in Jerusalem with my family, but you know, I had a goal. I, I wanted to be a Pharisee. And I studied the Scriptures. And there was this night that that suddenly there was this bright star. It was amazing to see. And it seemed like it hung right over Bethlehem, and literally the light from that star, it covered that small town. 
And I tell you, it wasn't within a week that we heard stories that some shepherds had said that they had actually been spoken to by angels and they came into Jerusalem and they were sharing the word that the Messiah, the Christ child, had been born in Bethlehem. Of course, I didn't believe that. Although I knew the scripture as well, Micah, the prophet, he had said that this Christ child, that the Messiah would be born there. Well, I think it was a few months after that there were some men who, who came into Jerusalem. They, they were very wealthy, you could tell. It was kind of a large entourage, and, and they were known as wise men from the east. And, and they said that they were seeking someone known as the king of the Jews. And they said that they had been following that star that had hung over Bethlehem. And I heard that Herod, the king, he's a wicked king, by the way, he had called them to his palace and and they spent a number of hours with Herod, and after they had left, they, they worked their way to Bethlehem. Do you know that in about three weeks later, Herod had sent troops to Bethlehem? That was a sad day in Israel. He killed every male child, two years and younger. I tell you, not one tear was shed for that man when he died a little over a year later. I have another memory. It was about 12 years after that. By this time, I was, I was a Pharisee. I was part of this group. We knew the Scriptures, and we taught the Scriptures. And I often was in the temple, and some of my colleagues was there, and they said that there was a young man. I don't know, he was somewhere around 12. It was right after the Passover. And he had been speaking to them in the temple. And they said that he had wisdom above many men. And he knew the scriptures so well. He said that the temple was his father's house. And he had to be about his father's work. And, and then his parents showed up and they were upset. And he was surprised that they were upset. He said, didn't you know that I needed to be about my father's work? Now I know now that that was Jesus, my Lord, and my Savior. Now, the first time that I, I met Jesus, I came to Jesus at night. Now, understand, Jesus had already had a reputation that he was a troublemaker. And the reason I remember that night so well is because my wife was really upset with me. Sometimes wives do get upset with you. But she was upset because she says, he's not like us, Nicodemus. He hangs out with people who have diseases. He spends time with sinners and even tax collectors. Nicodemus, don't go there. I'm worried for you. And with that warning, I went out into the quiet of the night. Now, I want you to know this wasn't the first time that I actually saw Jesus. I had seen him a few weeks earlier. He had come into the temple, but when I saw him there, he was like a madman. He had a whip, and he was driving at the money changers of the temple. He had turned over the tables. There were coins everywhere. And he says, you are making my father's house into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And then he said something that it was interesting. It was kind of funny, but he said, He said that someone's going to destroy the temple and that in three days he would raise it up again. Well, we laughed at that. You see, Jesus was unpredictable. He was like a crazy man. 
But I was intrigued by him, and, and I wanted to meet him. So, so I worked my way to the place where Jesus was staying, and, and I knocked on the door. And one of his disciples came to the door. I'm not really sure who it was. I think his name was Andrew. And he took me to where Jesus was, and the disciples were gathered around him. They were laughing when I walked in, and they got real quiet. They left us alone. They wanted us to have some time alone, I guess. And I really didn't know what to say. And so I thought, maybe I'll give him a compliment. And so this is what I said. I said, Rabbi, we know that you come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God be with him. I gave him the title of a rabbi. I mean, this man from Nazareth, he had been a carpenter right here. But it's interesting, he just looked at me. And those eyes were kind of piercing. I felt that he could look into my soul. But what he said shocked me. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What did he mean by that? I had just given this man a compliment. He spoke with such authority. Now, he didn't understand. I am the elder in this one. He's the younger. I should be the one having respect, but he said, you should be born again. I wasn't really clear what he meant by born again. Was he saying that I needed to change? Me, a teacher in Israel? Was he saying that somehow I wasn't ready for heaven? I mean, I helped many people know the scriptures. Was he, was he saying there was something I had to do? I had reached the very pinnacle of Judaism. That I, Nicodemus, needed to be changed, transformed, be born again. He said, Genethe Anothen, you must be born from above. You must be begotten from above. You must be born of God. I didn't know what to say with that. I mean, it confused me. Here I am, a man of God's word, and I was stunned. And in less than a minute of our encounter, I felt like this man was trying to convert me. That there was this power shift where I went there to perhaps sit down with him over a hot drink and, and talk about religion and philosophy. Instead, he made it about me, telling me that I needed to be born again. Well, of course, I responded to that. I, I, I said this. I said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I, I understand it's a little sarcastic. But really, I was seeking clarity. I, I wanted to know really what he meant by that statement. And I was hoping that he would explain it. But what he said next, I want to read it to you. It just left me a little more stunned. He said this. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I, I began to think about that and I, I knew that he was talking about a change that have, had to take place by the Spirit of God. That somehow I needed to be born by the Spirit and that mankind somehow couldn't just earn their way to heaven as I had thought, but no, there, there needed to be a work of God. And as I thought, I remembered a scripture by the prophet Ezekiel. God, speaking through Ezekiel, said this. He said, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all of my commandments. Now, Ezekiel connected the idea of the flesh and the spirit. And, and that, that the heart had to be changed. It, it had to go from a hard, stony heart to a heart of flesh, a heart that knew God. But it, it seemed to me that Ezekiel was saying very clearly that only God could do this work. And I think that's what this man Jesus was telling me as well. That there needed to be a change from God to the heart. Well, I just said, well, how can these things be? It wasn't clear to me yet. But what I really meant by saying, how can these things be, I, it really goes deeper than that. My thoughts were, are you telling me that a person can truly be forgiven? Are you telling me that, that a person can actually be right with God, that God will, will change a person's very nature, their heart, and that we can have a true relationship with God? I want you to hear his answer to me. I'm going to tell you up front, it offended me. Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Wouldn't you be offended? I am the teacher of Israel. But I didn't understand. How could you understand something like that? I had worked my whole life to get to the position where I was. I knew the Word of God. I was in the temple almost every day. That wasn't enough. What did this man want from me? What did he expect? But then he said something that absolutely blew my mind. I want to read it to you. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I had given this man a title. I called him a rabbi, a teacher, but he was taking that way farther than that. He's saying that he descended from heaven. 
as if heaven was his home. And he took it even farther. He said that he was the son of man. The son of man. You know what that means. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. I mean, only a lunatic would say that. Unless it's true. And I remembered right there that people had told me that this man had been healing the sick, that this man had been casting out demons, that this man had been doing miracle after miracle. And I suddenly remembered Jeremiah has said that the Messiah, that the Messiah would be one that did great signs. Did this man actually think that he truly was the Messiah? And as I'm pondering that, as I'm thinking about that, Jesus began to talk about Moses and Israel. I felt like I was constantly on the run trying to catch up with his mind. And he talked about how the people of Israel had offended God. That happened a lot, by the way. They so offended God by their complaints that God sent poisonous snakes into Israel and they bit them and many died. And so they cried out to God. They cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to God and God told Moses that he had to make an image of that snake out of bronze and put it on a pole and that pole needed to be lifted up and if people would look unto that image by faith they would be saved they'd be they wouldn't die and so Jesus said this he says as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life I'm like, okay, serpent, lift it up. Okay, he's talking about himself. He said, son of man. And he said that some, we had to, to believe in him, have faith in him, and that somehow he would be lifted up. And my mind is really, and I'm thinking, lifted up, what does that mean? And the only thing that I could think about a person being lifted up is that they would be put on a cross and be hung from that cross, lifted up, I mean, was Jesus saying that, that he would suffer and that he would die and that he would be lifted up and that we were to, to look up to him by faith and that we would be saved? And, you know, I thought about what in Genesis where, where it says that Abraham believed and it was kind of done to him as righteousness. And that's where he was going to sacrifice his own son and and God said that he would provide the sacrifice. Was it like that, that God was providing a sacrifice? Is, is that what he meant? I, I wasn't quite clear at this point. But then he said something to me that I still remember to this day, and it was utterly clear. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'd never heard of love like that. And he used that Greek word agape, which means sacrificial love, that God's sacrificial love. He loved this world so much, this broken, sinful world, and all the people in it. And, and that stunned me because I thought God loved us, the Jews. But he said it was the whole world. He's talking the Gentiles too, the sinner, even the tax collectors. He said that God's love is so broad 
and he loved all. And then he said he sent his son. Now, he had already said that he was the son of man, but now he's saying he is the son of God. Claiming to be the son of God. I was speechless. To be the son of God had him come down from heaven. Truly the Messiah. And then he says that Messiah is going to suffer and it must be one who is the Son of God. The holy God of this universe that loves people so much that he would sacrifice that much. That is radical love. A love that I've never experienced. But it's a love that changes you. And it began to change me. From that moment that I met Jesus face to face, although I didn't believe yet, that was the start for me. And I don't even remember saying goodbye to him. And as I was walking back to my home, I was pondering, could he be the Son of Man, the Messiah? And I stopped and I said, could he be the Son of God? I said it out loud. And a shiver ran up my spine. Now, the first time I saw Jesus, I came to him by night. I was afraid. But the second time that I saw Jesus, I stood up for him. I took a stand for Christ. I had a boldness beyond even what I, that I knew. And it was at a feast. It was about a year later, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I love the Feast of Tabernacles. That's a wonderful feast. And and always there's a ceremony that's held within the temple grounds. But I got to tell you, my, my colleagues, all those others in the Sanhedrin, they wanted to kill Jesus. In fact, they were looking for him. Now, if you don't know anything about the Feast of Tabernacles, it's a, it's a feast that celebrates the harvest. And, it, and you pray for, for abundant rains and abundant harvest. And, and it's a celebration time for God's people. And there's a ceremony where the priest, he'll take water and wine and they'll pour it over the hot coals and when the steam rises from the coals it's, it's a picture of our prayers going to God praying for abundant rains and abundant harvest and the priest he, he took the water and he poured it on those hot coals and as the steam began to rise all of a sudden Christ stood up and he says if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink you could have heard a pin drop. And then he said this, he said, he who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Again, belief in him. If you're thirsty, come to him. Well, understand, that really, really upset those on the Sanhedrin, those Jewish leaders. At this point, I wasn't upset. I, I, was, I was amazed, actually. I'd been pondering everything Jesus had said to me, but my colleagues were so upset that they actually tent, sent the temple guards to, to arrest Jesus. But what I saw, the temple guards walked up and they just stopped. It was just they were transfixed. They listened to his every word. Well, we convened a special council that evening and during that council, they pulled the guards in and they asked him why they did not arrest Jesus. And the men said, never have we heard a man say the things that this man have said. 
And I tell you, I've never seen such hatred in people. Everyone on the council started to yell and say that Jesus was a traitor, that he needed to be killed. Understand, the people loved Jesus. He had been performing amazing miracles, but every time he talked about us Pharisees, he called us whitewashed tombs. There was hatred there. And I don't know what came over me, but suddenly I had a boldness. And I stood up and I said, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Well, I'll tell you, if there was daggers and eyes, I would have been dead right there. Well, one of the leaders said to me, he says, you're not from Galilee, are you? Search no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, I want you to know I'm not a brave man. But for whatever reason, I felt like I needed to come to his defense. I think what was happening at that point is that the Holy Spirit was drawing me to Christ. He was changing me. But understand, for me to come to Christ, it would be at a great, great cost. It would cost me my position. It would cost me possibly my family. And very likely at this point, it would cost me my life. But I remember what he said. He said, come to me, you who are thirsty. Believe in me. And you'll have these rivers of living water within you. I remember one of his disciples said that he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. So the first time I saw Jesus, it was in private. I came to him at night. The second time I saw Jesus, I actually took a stand for him. But the third time that I saw Jesus, I honored Jesus. And if I have any regrets, it's that I didn't come to know Jesus sooner. But I know that's a work of God. It had been a couple of years since that event at the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'd heard a lot of things about Jesus' life, testimonies that he had performed amazing miracles, miracles that you wouldn't believe, such things as healing a man who'd been born blind. He even, I understand, had raised people from the dead. And he made all kinds of statements about himself. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. But do you know, he was brought before Caiaphas for trial, and I was there. And at that trial, there were people that were witnesses that were saying that all things about Jesus that weren't true, they were lies. I knew they were lies. And the council right there condemned him to death, and they took him to Pilate. And I thought for sure Pilate would see these lies, but he didn't. He condemned Jesus to death and death on a cross. And I was there when they put Jesus on that cross. And I remembered what he had said, that the Son of Man would be lifted up. And I heard the words of Jesus. He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Now, I didn't stay to watch him die. You understand that a crucifixion, it could take days for a person to die. So I went home. But the events that took place that day, it was amazing. I, the sky became dark. It was like night. And there was an earthquake that shook us so bad. I don't know how strong it was, but it was so strong, I literally almost fell down. And right after that earthquake, there was a knock on my door. And when I opened the door, 
It was my friend, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. I've got to tell you, he looked exhausted. And he said to me, have you heard they, they've crucified Jesus? And I said, I know, I was there. And he says, I, I've got to tell you, I, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. And he said, I, I was afraid to let anybody know because of people like you, the Pharisees. I thought it, they might kill me. And then he asked me something that, that I wasn't sure what to do with. He said, come and help me take the body of Jesus. I have a tomb. I want to bury him. Would you help me take him to the tomb? And I'll tell you, I stopped. I hesitated. It was a decision point. I knew the cost. Right then and there, I believed. Right then and there, I knew that this man was the Christ. And so I went with Joseph. And I'll tell you, I'm not a man who cries, but I wept that day. The pain that Jesus had to endure. But we had to hurry. And so we took him to the tomb because it was becoming dark and during the Passover, you have to make sure that you have them in the tomb before dark. And so we only had time to, to, to clean the body and to wrap him with cloths. Now, I had some spices that I had brought to anoint the body, but that was going to have to wait. There were some women that said that they would take care of that on Sunday after the Passover. And so I went home. But I got to tell you, three days later, there was a knock on my door. And Joseph told me that Jesus had risen from the grave, that he was alive, not dead. You see, when I thought Jesus was dead, I thought it's over. But now he said he is alive. And can I tell you, I've seen Christ. I was with 500 people at one time that saw him. I made a decision to believe. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have present tense, right now, eternal life. I've made my decision. How about you this morning? As a pastor, I wanted to share that through the eyes of Nicodemus in hopes that some of you that are here might understand the story in a different way. Because can I tell you, it's not just a story. It is truth written through men by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is Holy Scripture. And when the Scriptures speak of God's love, that kind of sacrificial love, today, God has sent a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That message calls us to faith, to believe. And I know that many of you do believe. But I also know that there are probably some here that maybe at one time you thought you believed, but you have not walked with Christ. For whatever reason, you've drifted from Him, and, and He is no longer Lord. You're hoping He's Savior. The Bible calls you to repent. The Bible says repent and believe. That was Jesus' message, repent and believe. 
And there might be some of you here that have never received Christ. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to receive Christ. But I want to share four things with you. First, you must recognize. You must recognize the love of God. The amazing love that God poured out by sending His only Son, that is called grace. God's unmerited favor to us, a sinful mankind. So you must recognize that, but also you must realize. You must realize that you are a sinner, that your life has offended God. And like Nicodemus, you cannot do enough to earn God's favor. He was at the top of the food chain, guys. It was not enough. Third thing, you must repent. You must repent. And what repentance means is confession of your sin and a turn. You must turn to Him. And you must turn to Him by faith. By faith. And what that means is receive. The idea of receiving Christ, the Bible says, as many as believed in Him, to those who received Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. It is repentance and faith. It is belief and receive. And I want to offer Jesus to you right now. If you have walked away from Christ, He's calling you back. If you've never received Christ, this is a day that you can receive Christ right now because He's calling you to faith, a step of faith to believe. And so I'd like us to bow our heads. And if you'd like to receive Christ right now, I'd like to say a prayer with you. And you can say it to yourself, to the Lord, quietly. And you can repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I realize God's love. I recognize the price that was paid for me. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and he died for my sins. I confess my sins and I repent. And I turn my life to you now. And I ask for forgiveness, Lord. I pray that you will save me. And I ask that you will fill me with your spirit and you will help me to live for you the rest of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. My prayer for you and, and as well as myself and our family is that we truly understand the breadth and the depth of God's love this Christmas. Rest in his love. That's why we can actually sing joy to the world. It's not about the circumstances, is it? It's about the truth that Christ is in us. And I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. May the joy and the love of Christ be in your home this Christmas. And may Christ be at the center, I pray for you and for us as well. God bless you.